Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth and a chapter that's been about the perils of nationalism and the ways in which gaining independence as a colony does not necessarily improve the situation in the country. Last week's reading went into a bit about how the overall masses of the country need a political education to understand the nuances of this, otherwise people in power will use whatever means they need, racism, nationalism, divisions, regionalism, to direct anger towards others while the people in charge exploit the workers for their own meagre profits. So let's get started on this week's reading. This brings us to consider the role of the political party as an underdeveloped country. We have seen in the preceding pages that very often simple souls, who moreover belong to the newly born bourgeoisie, never stop repeating that in an underdeveloped country, the direction of affairs by a strong authority, in other words a dictatorship, is a necessity. With this in view, the party is given the task of supervising the masses. The party plays understudy to the administration and the police, and controls the masses. Not in order to make sure that they really participate in the business of governing the nation, but in order to remind them constantly that the government expects from them obedience and discipline. That famous dictatorship, whose supporters believe that it is called for by the historical process and consider it an indispensable prelude to the dawn of independence, in fact symbolizes the decision of the bourgeois caste to govern the underdeveloped country first with the help of the people, but soon against them. The progressive transformation of the party into an information service is the indication that the government holds itself more and more on the defensive. The incoherent mass of the people is seen as a blind force that must be continually held in check, either by mystification or by the fear inspired by the police force. The party acts as a barometer and as an information service. The militant is turned into an informer. He is entrusted with punitive expeditions against the villages. The embryo opposition parties are liquidated by beatings and stonings. The opposition candidates see their houses set on fire. The police increase their provocations. In these conditions, you may be sure, the party is unchallenged, and 99.99% of the votes are cast for the government candidate. We should add that in Africa, a certain number of governments actually behave in this way. All the opposition parties, which moreover are usually progressive and would therefore tend to work for the greater influence of the masses in the conduct of public matters, and who desire that the proud, money-making bourgeoisie should be brought to heel, have been by dint of baton charges and prisons, condemned first to silence, and then to a clandestine existence. The political party in many parts of Africa, which are totally independent, is puffed up in a most dangerous way. In the presence of a member of the party, the people are silent, behave like a flock of sheep, and publish panegyrics in praise of the government or the leader. But in the street when evening comes, away from the village, in the cafes or by the river, The bitter disappointment of the people, their despair but also their unceasing anger, makes itself heard. The party, instead of welcoming the expression of popular discontent, instead of taking for its fundamental purpose the free flow of ideas from the people up to the government, forms a screen, 
and forbids such ideas. The party leaders behave like common sergeant majors, frequently reminding the people of the need for silence in the ranks. This party, which used to call itself the servant of the people, which used to claim that it worked for the full expression of the people's will, as soon as the colonial power puts the country into its control, hastens to send the people back to their caves. As far as national unity is concerned, the party will also make many mistakes. As for example, when the so-called national party behaves as a party based on ethnic differences, it becomes, in fact, the tribe, which makes itself into a party. The party which of its own will proclaims that it is a national party, and which claims to speak in the name of the totality of the people, secretly, sometimes even openly, organizes an authentic ethnic dictatorship. We no longer see the rise of a bourgeois dictatorship, but a tribal dictatorship. The ministers, the members of the cabinet, the ambassadors, and local commissioners are chosen from the same ethnological group as the leader, sometimes directly from his own family. Such regimes of the family sort seem to go back to the old laws of inbreeding, and not anger but shame is felt when we are faced with such stupidity, such an imposture, such intellectual and spiritual poverty. These heads of government are the true traitors in Africa, for they sell their country to the most terrifying of all its enemies, stupidity. This tribalizing of the central authority, it is certain, encourages regionalist ideas and separatism. All the decentralizing tendencies spring up again and triumph, and the nation falls to pieces, broken in bits. The leader, who once used to call for African unity, and who thought of his own little family, wakes up one day to find himself saddled with five tribes, who also want to have their own ambassadors and ministers, and irresponsible as ever, still unaware and still despicable, he denounces their treason. We have more than once drawn attention to the baleful influence frequently wielded by the leader. This is due to the fact that the party in certain districts is organized like a gang, with the toughest person in it as its head. The ascendancy of such a leader and his power over others is often mentioned, and people have no hesitation in declaring, in a tone of slightly admiring complicity, that he strikes terror into his nearest collaborators. In order to avoid these many pitfalls, an unceasing battle must be waged, a battle to prevent the party from ever becoming a willing tool in the hands of a leader. Leader. The word comes from the English verb to lead, but a frequent French translation is to drive. The driver, the shepherd of the people, no longer exists today. The people are no longer hurt. They do not need to be driven. If the leader drives me on, I want him to realize that at the same time I show him the way. The nation ought not to be something bossed by a grand pangendrum. We may understand the panic caused in government circles each time one of these leaders falls ill. They are obsessed by the question of who is to succeed him. What will happen to the country if the leader disappears? The ruling classes, who have abdicated in favor of their leader, irresponsible, oblivious of everything and essentially preoccupied with the pleasures of their everyday life, their cocktail parties, their journeys paid for by government money, the profits they can make out of various schemes. From time to time, these people discover the spiritual wasteland at the heart of the nation. A country that really wishes to answer the questions that history puts to it, 
that it wants to develop not only its towns but also the brains of its inhabitants, such a country must possess a trustworthy political party. The party is not a tool in the hands of the government. Quite on the contrary, the party is a tool in the hands of the people. It is they who decide on the policy that the government carries out. The party is not, and ought never to be, the only political bureau where all the members of the government and the chief dignitaries of the regime may meet freely together. Only too frequently, the political bureau, unfortunately, consists of all the party and its members who reside permanently in the capital. In an underdeveloped country, the leading members of the party ought to avoid the capital as if it had the plague. They ought, with some few exceptions, to live in the country districts. The centralization of all activity in the city ought to be avoided. No excuse of administrative discipline should be taken as legitimizing that excrescence of a capital which is already overpopulated and overdeveloped with a regard to nine-tenths of the country. The party should be decentralized in the extreme. It is the only way to bring life to regions which are dead, those regions which are not yet awakened to life. In practice, there will be at least one member of the political bureau in each area, and he will deliberately not be appointed as head of that area. He will have no administrative powers. The regional member of the political bureau is not expected to hold the highest rank in the regional administrative organization. He ought not automatically to belong to the regional administrative body. For the people, the party is not an authority but an organism through which they as the people exercise their authority and their will. The less there is of confusion and duality of powers, the more the party will play its part of guide, and the more surely it will constitute for the people a decisive guarantee. If the party is mingled with the government, the fact of being a party militant means that you take the shortcut to gain private ends, to hold a post in the government step up the ladder, get promotion, and make a career for yourself. In an underdeveloped country, the setting up of dynamic district officials stops the process whereby the towns become top-heavy and the incoherent rush toward the cities of the mass of country people. The setting up early in the days of independence and regional organizations, and officials who have full authority to do everything in their power to awaken such a region, to bring life to it, and to hasten the growth of consciousness in it, is a necessity from which there is no escape for a country that wishes to progress. Otherwise, the government bigwigs and the party officials group themselves around the leader. The government services swell to huge proportions, not because they are developing and specializing, but because newfound cousins and fresh militants are looking for jobs and hope to edge themselves into the government machine and the dream of every citizen is to get up to the capital and to have his share of the cake. The local districts are deserted. The mass of the country people, with no one to lead them, uneducated and unsupported, turn their backs on their poorly labored fields and flock toward the outer ring of suburbs. Thus, swelling out of all proportion, the ranks of the lumpen proletariat. The moment for a fresh national crisis is not far off. To avoid it, we think that a quite different policy should be followed, that the interior, the back country, ought to be the most privileged part of the country. 
Moreover, in the last resort, there is nothing inconvenient in the government choosing its seat elsewhere than in the capital. The capital must be deconsecrated. The outcast masses must be shown that we have decided to work for them. It is with this idea in mind that the government of Brazil tried to found Brasilia. The dead city of Rio de Janeiro was an insult to the Brazilian people. But, unfortunately, Brasilia is just another new capital, as monstrous as the first. The only advantage of this achievement is that, today, there exists a road through the bush to it. No, there is no serious reason which can be opposed to the choice of another capital, or to the moving of the government as a whole toward one of the most underpopulated regions. The capital of underdeveloped countries is a commercial notion inherited from the colonial period. But we, who are citizens of the underdeveloped countries, we ought to seek every occasion for contacts with the rural masses. We must create a national policy, in other words, a policy for the masses. We ought never to lose contact with the people which has battled for its independence and for the concrete betterment of its existence. The native civil servants and technicians ought not to bury themselves in diagrams and statistics, but rather in the hearts of the people. They ought not to bristle up every time there is a question of a move to be made to the interior. We should no longer see the young women of the country threaten their husbands with divorce if they do not manage to avoid being appointed to a rural post. For these reasons, the political bureau of the party ought to treat these forgotten districts in a very privileged manner and the life of the capital, an altogether artificial life, which is stuck onto the real national life like a foreign body, ought to take up the least space possible in the light of the nation, which is sacred and fundamental. In an underdeveloped country, the party ought to be organized in such fashion that it is not simply content with having contact with the masses. The party should be the direct expression of the masses, the party is not an administration responsible for transmitting government orders. It is the energetic spokesman and the incorruptible defender of the masses. In order to arrive at this conception of the party, we must above all rid ourselves of the very western, very bourgeois, and therefore contemptuous attitude that the masses are incapable of governing themselves. In fact, experience proves true that our masses understand perfectly the most complicated problems. One of the greatest services that the Algerian Revolution will have rendered to the intellectuals of Algeria will be to have placed them in contact with the people, to have allowed them to see the extreme, ineffable poverty of the people, at the same time allowing them to watch the awakening of the people's intelligence and the onward progress of their consciousness. The Algerian people, that mass of starving illiterates, those men and women plunged for centuries in the most appalling obscurity, have held out against the tanks and airplanes, against napalm and psychological services. But above all, against corruption and brainwashing, against traitors, and against the national armies of General Belluni, this people has held out in spite of hesitant or feeble individuals, and in spite of would-be dictators. This people is held out because for seven years its struggle has opened for it vistas that it never dreamed existed. Today, arm factories are working in the midst of the mountains, several yards underground. Today, the people's tribunals are functioning at every level, 
and local planning commissions are organizing the division of large-scale holdings and working out the Algeria of tomorrow. An isolated individual may obstinately refuse to understand a problem, but the group or the village understands with disconcerting rapidity. It is true that if care is taken to use only a language that is understood by graduates in law and economics, you can easily prove that the masses have to be managed from above. But if you speak the language of every day, if you are not obsessed by the perverse desire to spread confusion and to rid yourself of the people, then you will realize that the masses are quick to seize every shade of meaning and to learn all the tricks of the trade. If recourse is had to technical language, this signifies that it has been decided to consider the masses as uninitiated. Such a language is hard to put it to hide the lecturer's wish to cheat the people and to leave them out of things. The business of obscuring language is a mask behind which stands out the much greater business of plunder. The people's property and the people's sovereignty are to be stripped from them at one and the same time. Everything can be explained to the people on the single condition that you really want them to understand. And if you think that you don't need them, and that on the contrary, they may hinder the smooth running of the many limited liability companies whose aim it is to make the people even poorer, then the problem is quite clear. For if you think that you can manage a country without letting the people interfere, if you think that the people upset the game by their mere presence, whether they slow it down or whether by their natural ignorance they sabotage it, then you must have no hesitation. You must keep the people out. Now, it so happens, when the people are invited to partake in the management of the country, they do not slow the movement down, but on the contrary, they speed it up. We Algerians have had the occasion and the good fortune during the course of this war to handle a fair number of questions. In certain country districts, the politico-military leaders of the revolution found themselves in fact confronted with situations which called for radical solutions. We shall look at some of these situations. During the years 1956 to 57, French colonialism had marked off certain zones as forbidden, and within these zones people's movements were strictly controlled. Thus, the peasants could no longer go freely to the towns and buy provisions. During this period, the grocers made huge profits. The prices of tea, coffee, sugar, tobacco, and salt soared. The black market flourished blatantly. The peasants who could not pay in money mortgaged their crops, in other words, their land, or else lopped off field after field of their father's farms, and during the second phase worked them for the grocer. As soon as the political commissioners realized the danger of the situation, they reacted immediately. Thus, a rational system of provisioning was instituted. The grocer who went to the town was obliged to buy from nationalist wholesalers, who handed him an invoice, which clearly showed the prices of the goods. When the retailer got back to the village, before doing anything else, he had to go to the political commissioner, who checked the invoice, decided on the margin of profit, and fixed the price at which the various goods should be sold. However, the retailer soon discovered a new trick, and after three or four days, declared that his stocks had run out. In fact, he went on with his business of selling on the black market on the sly. The reaction of the politico-military authorities was thoroughgoing. 
heavy penalizations were decided on, and the fines collected were put into the village funds and used for social purposes, or to pay for public works in the general interest. Sometimes it was decided to shut down the shop for a while. Then if there was a repetition of black marketeering, the business was at once confiscated, and a managing committee elected to carry it on, which paid a monthly allowance to the former owner. Taking these experiences as a starting point, the functioning of the main laws of economies was explained to the people with concrete examples. The accumulation of capital ceased to be a theory and became a very real and immediate mode of behavior. The people understood how that once a man was in trade, he could become rich and increase his turnover. Then and then only did the peasants tell the tale of how the grocer gave them loans at exorbitant interest, and how others recalled how he evicted them from their land, and how from owners they became laborers. The more the people understand, the more watchful they become, and the more they come to realize that finally, everything depends on them and their salvation lies in their own cohesion. In the true understanding of their interests, and in knowing who their enemies are. The people come to understand that wealth is not the fruit of labor, but the result of organized, protected robbery. Rich people are no longer respectable people, they are nothing more than flesh-eating animals, jackals, and vultures which wallow in the people's blood. With another end in view, the political commissioners have had to decide that nobody will work for anyone else any longer. The land belongs to those that till it. This is a principle which has, through explanation, become a fundamental law of the Algerian Revolution. The peasants who used to employ agricultural labourers have been obliged to give a share of the land to their former employees. So it may have been seen that production per acre trebled, in spite of the many raids by the French, in spite of the bombardments from the air, and the difficulty of getting manures. The fellows who at harvest time were able to judge and weigh the crops thus obtained wanted to know whence came such a phenomenon, and they were quick to understand that the idea of work is not as simple as all that, that slavery is opposed to work, and that work presupposes liberty, responsibility, and consciousness. In those districts where we have been able to carry out successfully these interesting experiments, where we have watched man being created by revolutionary beginnings, the peasants have very clearly caught hold of the idea that the more intelligence you bring to your work, the more pleasure you will have in it. We have been able to make the masses understand that work is not simply the output of energy, nor the functioning of certain muscles, but that people work more by using their brains and their hearts, than with only their muscles and their sweat. In the same way, in these liberated districts which are at the same time excluded from the old trade routes, we have had to modify production, which formerly looked only toward the towns and toward export. We have organized production to meet consumers' needs for the people and for the units of the National Army of Liberation. We have quadrupled the production of lentils and organized the manufacture of charcoal. Green vegetables and charcoal have been sent through the mountains from the north to the south, whereas the southern districts send meat to the north. This coordination was decided upon by the FLN, and it was they who set up the system of communications. We did not have any technicians or planners coming from big western universities, but in these liberated regions, the daily ration went up 
to the hitherto unheard of figure of 3,200 calories. The people were not content with coming triumphant out of this test. They started asking themselves theoretical questions. For example, why did certain districts never see an orange before the War of Liberation, while thousands of tons are exported every year abroad? Why were grapes unknown to a great many Algerians, whereas the European peoples enjoyed them by the million? Today, the people have a very clear notion of what belongs to them. The Algerian people today know that they are the sole owners of the soil and mineral wealth of their country. And if some individuals do not understand the unrelenting refusal of the FLN to tolerate any encroachment on this right of ownership, and its fierce refusal to allow any compromise on principles, they must one and all remember that the Algerian people is today an adult people, responsible and fully conscious of its responsibilities. In short, the Algerians are men of property. If we have taken the example of Algeria to illustrate our subject, it is not at all with the intention of glorifying our own people, but simply to show the important part played by the war in leading them toward consciousness of themselves. It is clear that other peoples have come to the same conclusion in different ways. We know for sure today that in Algeria the test of force was inevitable, but other countries through political action and through the work of clarification undertaken by a party have led their people to the same results. In Algeria, we have realized that the masses are equal to the problems which confront them. In an underdeveloped country, experience proves that the important thing is not that 300 people form a plan and decide upon carrying it out, but that the whole people plan and decide, even if it takes them twice or three times as long. The fact is that the time taken up by explaining, the time lost in treating the worker as a human being, will be caught up in the execution of the plan. People must know where they are going and why. The politician should not ignore the fact that the future remains a closed book so long as the consciousness of the people remains imperfect, elementary, and cloudy. We African peoples must have very clear ideas on the situation of our people, but this clarity of ideas must be profoundly dialectical. The awakening of the whole people will not come about all at once. The people's work in the building of the nation will not immediately take on its full dimensions. First, because the means of communication and transmission are only beginning to be developed. Secondly, because the yardstick of time must no longer be that of the moment or up till the next harvest, but must become that of the rest of the world. And lastly, because the spirit of discouragement which has always been deep-rooted in people's minds by colonial domination is still very near the surface. But we must not overlook the fact that victory over those weaknesses, which are the heritage of material and spiritual domination of the country by another, is a necessity from which no government will be able to escape. Let us take the example of work under the colonial regime. The settler never stopped complaining that the native is slow. Today, in certain countries which have become independent, we hear the ruling classes taking up the same cry. But the fact is that the settler wanted the native to be enthusiastic. By a sort of process of mystification, which constitutes the most sublime type of separation from reality, he wanted to persuade the slave that the land that he worked belonged to him, that the mines where he lost his health were owned by him. 
The settler was singularly forgetful of the fact that he was growing rich through the death throes of the slave. In fact, what the settler was saying to the native was, kill yourself that I may become rich. Today we must behave in a different fashion. We ought not to say to the people, kill yourselves that the country may become rich. If we want to increase the national revenue and decrease the importing of certain products which are useless or even harmful, if we want to increase agricultural production and overcome illiteracy, we must explain what we are about. The people must understand what is at stake. Public business ought to be the business of the public. So the necessity of creating a large number of well-informed nuclei at the bottom crops up again. Too often, in fact, we are content to establish national organizations at the top and always in the capital. The Women's Union, the Young People's Federation, trade unions, etc. But if one takes the trouble to go to investigate what is behind the office in the capital, if you go into the inner room where the reports ought to be, you will be shocked by the emptiness, the blank spaces, and the bluff. There must be a basis. There must be cells that supply content and life. The masses should be able to meet together, discuss, propose, and receive directions. The citizens should be able to speak, to express themselves, and to put forward new ideas. The branch meeting and the committee meeting are liturgical acts. They are privileged occasions given to a human being to listen and to speak. At each meeting, the brain increases its means of participation, and the eye discovers a landscape more and more in keeping with human dignity. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.